Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Best movie monologue. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcast should have a theme song. Podcast should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. Hal, I'm worried about this episode. What are you worried I'll about? I'll tell you why. Here's what I'm worried about. What we are trying to figure out is the greatest movie monologue of all time. We're trying to get to that truth, Hal. And when we get to that truth, I don't know if we can handle it. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> that was such a disdainful <laughs> and uh, unwilling laugh to that. It's nice to see you, buddy. Nice to see you, too. Annie McGow yeah. asked this question on Facebook, and this is proof you chose this topic. I did. Because you went and saw it, so it's proof to people. It's like yeah. a proof of life that you have been on the Facebook page. And I Facebook think this is a great topic. And not only did I see this topic on the Facebook page, I went through and I uh, saw some of the choices that the people of the world have chosen for this topic. And I think it's actually uh, this might be our very first semi crowdsourced episode, because I think there are a lot of great monologues in this mix. There are a few others that I would like to throw in the mix as well. I'm sure there are a few others that you would like to throw in the mix. First of all, what makes a great movie monologue? I think it's how it meets the moment. It's the performance and the writing coming together. You yeah, know, yeah. Jack Nicholson, as in your example, giving mm-hmm. the you can't handle the truth. We live in a world with walls monologue is yeah. would be a great performance by Jack Nicholson because he's Jack Nicholson. But the writing is fantastic. And it yeah, in a very Aaron Sorkin way summarizes the point of view of this character. And also of Aaron Sorkin, in a sense, because Aaron Sorkin monologues always. I mean, you've got his monologues from the newsroom and from mm-hmm. Studio 60. Where there's no topic that we don't know how Aaron Sorkin feels about it. Sure. I think it's also how memorable is it? Yeah. And there are some great ones that were suggested by the people of the world. It's always fun to have a suggestion first bubble up in the Facebook group, facebook.com yeah. slash groups. We got this podcast because... It instantly turns into a conversation. Everybody has their answer. Everybody has their favorite. And that's how you know. And I think what you keyed into, what makes this such a great topic for discussion for this podcast is people instantly are like, I have an opinion on that. What about this one? What about that one? I jumped in with one. Yeah. Our former guest and current friend Katya Friedman had one. Like there are all sorts of great suggestions coming in. Is there one when I say to you, best movie monologue that immediately jumps to your head and what is it i'm not saying that that's going to be the answer but is there something that comes to mind yes there is one that jumps to mind as i believe a perfectly written and a perfectly acted monologue with a universal sentiment delivered by a force for good in the movie and not you know there's some great evil villain monologues out there but this one in particular is a force for good monologue uh-huh. that uh i really i think i think it says a lot it's aspirational to the world i think mm-hmm. it is um anyone can relate to it uh, because it touches on a lot of different topics 
that for me is Robin Williams's monologue from Goodwill Hunting. Uh, you can tell me all about the Sistine Chapel, but you can't tell me what the room smells like. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole, and it is a long monologue for a movie. And also I think it's, you know, it's no surprise that Robin Williams got an Oscar for playing that character and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck got an Oscar for writing that script. Yeah, it's a great monologue and it's it's a pivotal moment in the film because yeah. up until then, Will has been manipulating every therapist he sat down with. He finds a way to get them upset. He takes the power in the relationship and then makes it so it's impossible to work with him. So that mm-hmm. he can go to the professor and say, well, I tried, just I, I don't know what you want from me. And he, he provokes Robin Williams to that point, to the point that yeah. Robin Williams grabs him because he's mentioned his wife. Yeah. And the fact that he meets with him and has this conversation not only lets Will know that he's met his equal, but also reveals so much about both characters. Yeah. That this genius has gotten by because he absorbs and understands everything he reads. So he's amassed all this knowledge, but knowledge is not the same as experience. Yeah. And so for him to realize, he's smart enough to realize that he's smart enough to not have that power. And that's what kickstarts, you know, one of the better mentor mentee or friendships in, in film period, because it's so revealing. You could also throw in the monologue where he talks about his wife farting in her sleep. Yeah. Because it's such a human moment and it really encapsulates what it means to grieve someone. I mean, we just yesterday was would have been my mother's 71st birthday. And the things that I remember are not necessarily the big things. They're the small things. And those little things are what endear us to people and to have a loving relationship with someone is to know them really, really closely. I feel like I'm really taking this. This is like the second week in a row. I've said the comedy of this is gone. Look, it's fine. About- sometimes we, sometimes we'll talk about funny <laughs> monologues, but you and I look, you and I work in comedy, but we're all yeah. also both human beings and sure. we're also, uh, we're also actors. And I think that recognizing a good acting performance and a good, well written script is a thing. And if it is something as universal as thinking about the small things of a person that you love and care about that is no longer here, if a monologue in a movie can bring that bring those things to the surface in a positive way for you. I think that's a great thing. And I think especially with this monologue, it is that power dynamic and that shifting of power. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned Matt Damon takes the power or Will Hunt, you know, uh, Will Hunting takes the power and then his uh, psychiatrist takes it back. And it's the way that he takes the power back from him is completely with love by telling him he doesn't care what he thinks. Yes. It's so many different layers of tough love that I think it's, uh, it, and it is, it's one of those that's, that's perfectly executed. And here's to your mom, a wonderful woman. Yes. Can I balance this out though? Please, please balance this out with a ridiculous and hilarious monologue. Today I went to drop off my vote Mm -hmm. because here in Los Angeles, it's the day of our primary. So I went to, that's right. My vote off in a, in a voting box, my votes, and I decided (laughs) to get Arby's. Oh yeah. Afterwards. So I went and got a big sandwich and fries and lemonade. And then I refused to eat it inside of my home because it was like, <laughs> no, you go to a motel with this. 
Arby's doesn't cross the threshold. I'm not carrying you into the place where I spend time with my wife, oh. where I relax by myself, where I make my own food. You stay Man, out here, big Montana. I get that. I get that. I do the same thing because I, you know what I really don't like seeing? Mm. Really don't like seeing that uh, Happy Meal box in the trash can at my home. You know what I mean? The next day you look and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember what I did. Yeah. yeah. This, this trash <laughs> This trash goes in the trash can of the garage. It doesn't come in the house. None of it does. Yeah. Lose my number, Arby's. Um, lose so- my number. Um, can I pitch a, can I pitch a way to handle this? Sure. To handle this. Oh, I'm sorry. You look like you're about to say something. I, I'm always about to say something. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think we might be able to just, uh, because this is such a huge and wide ranging topic. Yes. I think, and we've got a lot of input already from the people of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I believe some people of the world actually already uh, pointed out this particular monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, we can just go uh, back and forth and uh, we'll throw out some that we think are, are okay. potential contenders. You threw one out. I will now throw one out. Perfect. This is a movie that I think it sort of flew under the radar. And it came mm-hmm. out during that same like Dead Poets Society period of a teacher comes in and changes their students' lives. And that is 1993's Renaissance Man, directed by Penny Marshall, starring Danny DeVito, <laughs> yeah. Mark Wahlberg. Oh, my God. Uh, I never saw this we movie. Have St- uh, Stacey Dash was in that movie, as was Lilo Brancato Jr., and that's who I want to focus on. This movie is about a English teacher. Who First of all, I feel like if your name is Lolo Brancato, I feel like adding Jr. is a hat on a hat. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's, it's the kind of name where you yeah. listen and go, There's two of them? Yeah. <laughs> But that film, mm. Danny DeVito is an English teacher who is down on his luck and he specializes in Shakespeare. And he's brought in to teach a group of soldiers for the army who are the double D's because they are dumb as dog shit. Mm-hmm. And he teaches them through Shakespeare. He makes them realize they're not as dumb as they think they are. They've been told their whole life that they're dumb. Mm-hmm. And he takes them to see, I think the St. Crispin's Day speech is from Richard the Third. Henry V. Henry V. Okay. So he takes them and the soldiers sort of take this in and they sort of understand through that what their role is in the world and what it means to be a soldier and to be a person. And during these drills they have to do in the rain, Lilo Brancato, he gives this speech. He gives the monologue. And it's such a great moment. It's a really powerful moment. He's a fantastic actor. And... I think it's a, I think it's a great monologue. I don't know if it would win because I don't think a lot of people think of the movie Renaissance Man ever. Mm-hmm. And when they do, they may not immediately think of that. They might just think of like, Hey, wasn't Marky Mark in that? Yeah. Or they, or Marky they think Mark. about it getting snubbed for all of the Oscars that it should have gotten. I know. It's, I really like it's a great black mark on the Oscars. Worse than that slap <laughs> is the fact that Renaissance Man, the Danny DeVito. Never uh, got to walk up on that stage and get his award for Renaissance Man. Or uh, what's his name? Gina Lola Brigida Jr. What's the guy's that's name? Cr- that's right. <laughs> Lilies, yeah. Lilies of the Field Jr. Bobo Brewbaker III. What was this guy's name? <laughs> Bobo Brewbaker III. Yeah. So I, that would be one I would throw out as a great movie monologue. And it's well, interesting this is great because too. It's, it's obviously well written because it's Shakespeare. Yeah. But it's the context of it and the performance of it. So it's really ju- it is thing. it is literally he's doing the St. Crispin's Day speech. Correct. In the okay. Rain. 
It's not a twist on it. It's not his own words revamped. No. It is straightforward. I kind of love that. It's so like, good. It's tough to beat Shake. And that is a great speech. It is well worth. I didn't realize you hadn't seen this movie. I felt no. like I feel like there are a lot of times where we talk about something and you straight up have not seen the movie. And I'm shocked yeah. every time. And I feel like I should be at a point in our friendship 20 years in, almost yeah. 20 years in, where I should be aware of movie that like probably he hasn't seen this. Maybe, yeah. maybe don't assume he's seen this one. Here's the thing, Hal. Uh, you, we've known each other as friends for a very long time and yeah. also as improvisers for a while. And you know that the improv mantra is uh, your pool of knowledge is a mile wide and an, and an inch deep, mm-hmm. which means I have seen <laughs> thousands of movie trailers. <laughs> but there are there. Yeah. I, I know you know what I remember. You know what I remember from the movie Broken Arrow is John Travolta saying, what a predicament. And would you mind not shooting at the nuclear weapons? That's right. Christian Slater. That was like his first big movie, his first big payday movie yeah. after Pulp Fiction. He was like, he's great back. in that. And speaking, <laughs> speaking of Pulp Fiction, if yes. I may, please, there is a great monologue from Pulp Fiction that okay. I would like to be my next one that I throw out there. Sure. And that is, of course, Samuel L. Jackson, Ezekiel 2517. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the whole Bible thing. quote. Yes. Yeah. Bible. Great Bible quote. Uh, and then he does it twice. He does his opening version where you see the version of the monologue. This is one of those few examples, I think, where you see somebody do a monologue as the mask that they wear in life. Uh huh. And then later in the movie, you see him do the same monologue again and explain why he does that monologue as a mask that he wears in life and takes the mask off and gives us the unvarnished version of himself beyond that monologue in an even more powerful monologue. Mm-hmm. The I'm trying Ringo. I'm trying real hard. That monologue at the end, it's great at the beginning when he's talking to Frank Whaley and, but it's incredible at the end when he is talking to Tim Roth and he convinces a man who is robbing a diner to simply to give him his wallet back and leave. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw, I will throw that out there. It's a great performance. And it's another one of those legendary, you know how he feels about everything in the world writers, Quentin Tarantino. It's so interesting how Samuel L. Jackson has become an actor who's bigger than any part he plays. Like he's, I would put him in that latter day Pacino, Robert mm-hmm. De Niro, where you watch and you're like, Oh, that's Robert De Niro. And it's a great performance, but I still, I'm watching Robert De Niro give a great performance. And how enjoyable is this? Which this is a good example. This film is a good example of, of just how good he is in case mm-hmm. you ever forgot, which is hard. I, he doesn't, I've never seen him in a performance where I thought he was phoning it in. So no. uh, that is a, that is a good one and a good monologue. I'll give you another one. Okay. He's a, he was an older guy or, you know, uh, I think he was in his fifties probably by the time they were doing Pulp Fiction or his late forties. But what about a child who desperately wants to hold on to a moment in time because everything's about to go away and they've gotten so far in their adventure and they have this moment where they can finally get away from it all. And all they have to do is take the bucket from Troy and ride up to the top. But you know what? Up there, it's their time. It's their time up there. Down here, down it's, here our, it's time. our time. It's, it's our time, time down, down here. here. And all that goes away the second we ride up Troy's bucket. 
can I tell you, I almost had an improv group at Second City called Troy's Bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get suggestions put into a bucket and then take them out at the top? Yeah, of the show and then we took, the we took, yeah. And then you, we would have to scream the suggestions a la Annie, you goonie. Uh, <laughs> I love that every improv group has, like, you have to have your opening. You have to find a way to get a suggestion and work it mm-hmm. in. I think my favorite of, of any improv group is, is Nerdvana. Our friends. How, how did they? Yeah. Chris uh, and Steven, who was, Chris and Steven were they amazing. They would have a dictionary yeah. mm-hmm. and they would, they would thumb through the dictionary. And they would have someone tell them to stop. They would basically come to a random word and then they would build an entire long form off of it. They were two of the smart, like I was so intimidated to improvise with them when I got the chance because they're so smart. They're crazy genius dudes. Yeah. Stephen James and Chris Compton, shout out brilliant improvisers. Yes. I mean, Stephen teaches drama to like he just like two of the smartest, but nicest and obviously welcoming and very generous improvisers but i on myself was like i need to have a level of reference that at least puts me in the conversation with them i I don't want to drag them down in terms of how smart this show is (laughs) which is funny you're a smart guy hal thank you i would not think that you would be dumbing down any improv show except maybe that one (laughs) exactly exactly you understand I would feel the same way. Yeah. I watched those guys once. They ended an improv set with both of them dead on stage. Mm-hmm. And one of them just lifts his hand up a la a hand puppet with no puppet on it. And the puppet, the, the puppet hand of his did a looming piece this morning with its brings. The sun for sorrow will mm-hmm. not show its head. Speaking of monologues, just did the prince's monologue from, or a version of the prince's monologue from the end of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare coming up again. Sure. Is it my turn or your turn? It's your turn. I want to throw out one. And this is one that friend of the show and guest of the show and the world's kindest woman, Katya Lidsky Freeman, also selected. And I don't know why I said Katya and put the glottal stop in the middle there, but I'm holding on to it. Uh, and that is uh, Sally Field in Steel Magnolias. Oh, yeah. At, the funeral. at Shelby's funeral. The, all the things she can do, but my daughter can't. She never could. Sally Field's one of the great American actors. And that is, I think, an example of all of these are, I think, great examples of different versions of great acting. Some of them are moving outside of themselves. Some are really digging deep within themselves. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. This one is gut wrenching. And it's it's just a mother who has lost her daughter. As played by one of the great actors in America and in a cast of incredible actors, this is the standout moment of that movie or a standout moment of that movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. One of Jennifer's favorites. Yeah. And that she's, a, she's is, a southerner. <laughs> that scene is fantastic, not only for her monologue, but for what happens after it of them mm-hmm. all just sort of that release of laughter. Like, yeah, the ice break moment after it is so delightful. Sometimes that's, yeah, sometimes that's all you can do. But, you know, great monologues, the ones that stick with us are either about something we wish we could do mm-hmm. or something that we've experienced and we identify with. Yeah. And before we go to break, you just brilliantly illustrated one that touches on something that we all have felt in one way or another, to have that loss, to not understand, to struggle with it, to be mad at the Mm -hmm. world 
that it's happened, but I want to talk about one that is filled with a swagger of like, I wish I could say that just once. And if Mm -hmm. you've ever managed a group of salespeople, you have dreamed (laughs) of delivering the speech from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which is unique in that it was written specifically for the film. It does not exist in the Broadway version of the show. Everything else is faithful. And that scene written specifically for Alec Baldwin is a great performance of a great David Mamet monologue. And it does heighten the stakes of the moment. Well, it's the exposition. I mean, how how great a monologue do you have to be Mm -hmm. to somehow get all the exposition for the movie out and still be so powerful that in every production that's been done of that play since mm-hmm. that's now officially added to the script. If you go to oh, yeah. Sam French or dramatist play service and get, you know, the rights to do that play, you're doing that monologue. Yeah. We, I was part of a cast that did that in college and that yeah. was in it. And that me too. Who'd big, you play? That was big, I was Williamson. Who did you nice. play? Shelly the Machine Levine. Of course you were. <laughs> of course you were Williamson. <laughs> Will you Tell me go to go to lunch. lunch. Tell me to go to lunch. Will Al. you go to lunch? Will you go to lunch and get Arby's and eat it outside uh, because outside you don't your bring home. that trash in? Okay, real quick. One more, just because we're on this topic. Okay, real we, quick, and then we'll before, take a break. Then right. we'll take a break. Before we go to the ad break, uh, talking about high status people, the highest status person in the room, schooling the rest of the room or just yeah. showing off their status and, you know, swinging, uh, swinging their cojones around. <laughs> Got to give it to the goat. Got to give it to Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. Right? When she is explaining fashion and uh, the difference between the two sweaters. Oh. Yeah. Okay, we can go to break now. We can go to break now. We'll take a break. Think of your own monologue while you listen to some of the fine shows here on the Maximum Fun Network and maybe a sponsor or two. I don't make the rules. We'll be right back. Hey, it's John Moe. Join me on Depression Mode for conversations on how mental health shapes our life. This week, David Sedaris with stories of his late father that he's finally willing to tell. I think there's a difference between, you know, a good person and a good character. Like, he was a good character, my boyfriend here. And my father was another one of those people. He was a really good character. But he, he, he wasn't a good person. Depression Mode with John Moe, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun. And I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me? And we're back. All right. I have one. What you got? I often point to this monologue, and it's it's a brief one, but very good one, as Mm -hmm. proof that to anyone who doubts his ability that beyond just picking really good movies to be in that Keanu Reeves is an exceptional actor. And that's from 1989's parenthood. 
the scene uh, while when Julia's had her haircut, mm-hmm. and he's he's getting ready to take her to uh, to school, and he's with Diane Weist in the kitchen, and he's he's I think he's asked to give the talk to Gary because at this point we've discovered what Gary's been hiding in his room, mm-hmm. and he has this discussion of his old man and what a terrible person he was, and it ends with you know you license to drive a car, you need a license to catch a fish. But they'll let any butt women asshole be a father. And then he has this moment where he shakes off the intelligence to revert back to being like a dumb, just out of teenage guy and then goes about his day. But it's such a great delivery and it's, it's a brief little piece, but I love what it says. You know, that movie is a great exploration of family and what it means to be a parent and what it means to relate to siblings and how the choices that your parents make affect the choices you make as a parent. And so to hear that sort of summary of it is something that's easy to forget because there are a lot of people who weren't fortunate to have two loving parents the way that you and I did. Yeah. And it's easy to lose in that the fact that they didn't have to pass a course or qualify in any way to be a parent. They just had to do what everybody else does to make a baby. So. Which is what? Shake hands and have ice cream. Ooh. That's, I've done, oh, I've done that before. Not at oh, the same God, time. Oh, God, is somebody going to knock on my door, Hal? Not at some... the, you have to do it different. Yeah. Hi, I'm your baby. My name is Baskin Robbins. <laughs> Can I sleep in the bed? You take the couch. I have a bad back. By the way, I'm 50. Yeah. Also, why is your last name Robbins and not Gagliardi? Are you sure you're not Tony Robbins' baby? You kind of have that same deep voice. That's who I was raised by. Let me tell you how to take control of your life. First, why are you grabbing my shoulders? Couch. Oh, why are you grabbing my Let shoulders? Let me shake you really hard. Why are you shaking me, Tony Robbins? I'm seven feet tall and my <laughs> teeth are eight feet tall. Hey, speaking of uh, fathers. Yes. You know, there's another great monologue from Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. If you really want to think about a father's love, Sometimes it comes from a father who's willing to hide a watch in his ass for a really long time. Oh, that's not from Pulp Fiction. That's from True Romance. No, the watch. It? It's yeah, no, it's oh, Bruce no, it Willis's is from, dad. Oh, yeah, it is. I think you have a different monologue from True Romance. Oh, yes, that's right. It's Bruce, Bruce Willis's, Willis's dad. Why that's why he's got to go back and get the watch. Yes. Christopher Walken in his inimitable Christopher Walken style telling a very long story about how first uh Bruce Willis's father and then Christopher Walken uh had to carry this watch around in their ass uh and now it has made its way to Bruce Willis. It is a it is not an important monologue in the history of cinema but boy is it fun and hilarious and ridiculous and over the top. Uh and Charlie Knuckles pointed that one out in the group. I'm trying to give shout outs within the group for any of the ones that we mentioned. Joseph Finn also mentioned the Goodwill Hunting one and Frank Doodle Willis throughout Independence Day a great, hilarious, over-the-top, Americana, jingoistic, flag-waving, 4th of July, fireworks, <laughs> uh, star, uh, what's his name? Um, what's his, Lone Star? Bill Pullman. Yeah, no, I call him Lone Star. Sure. He will always be Lone Star in my heart. Yes. This President is Lone Star. Day. Yeah. Great rousing speech. Yeah. Did you just give two? Yeah, you go give two. I got. Two I, I, these you. weren't these weren't my two. These were just. I'm just one pointing is, out ones that other people thought were great. I have a few more, and then we can start narrowing them down. One is, and I can't remember if somebody put this in here, is Denzel Washington's speech from the end of Training Day. Oh but yeah, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Is the polite way of saying it, as the entire neighborhood like turns on him, 
and sort of consumes him. He's, he loses his power, but it's a great speech. Part of the reason why he won the Oscar. It's so weird. You look at these big moments because at the Oscars, they show you a clip that is like a defining moment of this performance. And certainly mm-hmm. that's one that might put him over the top in a field of very qualified nominees beside him. But he's great the entire movie. That is a fantastic yeah. speech. That is a yeah. great one. And I will give you another one. Please. The other one is from a modern film mm-hmm. that I think is kind of a classic already. I've certainly watched it many times, and that is 2016's Hidden Figures about the computers, the African-American women who helped NASA in the space race and helped mm-hmm. turn things around in, in a lot of different ways. And her speech. Whose speech? Taraji P. Henson, her character, because she gets put in Kevin Costner's division. Nobody will mm. drink out of the same coffee pot as her. And every time she wants to use the restroom, right. she has to go across the entire Huntsville Yeah, campus. they show her walking across the whole campus. So she eventually does it in the rain and somebody comments to her. It might have been Kevin Costner and she just loses it yeah. and talks about the quote from his, well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay the colored enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog day and night living on coffee from a pot. None of you want to touch. So excuse me if I have to go to the restroom a few times a day. Yeah. Fantastic movie. Great performance. And uh, that quote shows you sort of where things were in that time. Mm-hmm. And it's just a great performance and a really, really good speech that in the film starts to affect change. Now, obviously, some of these are dramatization. I don't think Katherine Johnson actually made a speech like that, but she obviously was right. good enough at what she did that she is a pioneer and has been honored rightfully, maybe later than she should have been, which is, but it's better than not at all. And at least she's recognized for her contributions. And it's a really, really enjoyable movie. And that is a great monologue in that moment of, of that frustration boiling over. I don't remember that monologue, to be honest. I remember that moment. I don't remember the monologue specifically, but I remember loving that movie. I have a couple more that I want to throw out, and I'm going to throw out two now. But I'll tell you why I'm going to throw out two now. It is because they are from the same movie. And I think that for me, this, I know I said that uh, I was holding on to these. I think that the Robin Williams scene from Goodwill Hunting, I think, is a perfect monologue. Mm hmm written for the movies as a movie monologue. Uh, there's a movie that came out a couple of years ago where in the movie, it is a, it, it's based on a play and it has two of the greatest monologues I have ever seen. And it is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mm-hmm. Did you see the movie? I've seen some of it. I've not finished it yet, but I encourage everyone. If you've not seen this movie, this movie got sort of mixed reviews because of its theatricality. I, as a theater person, loved it. It was based on a play by August Wilson mm-hmm. and it was directed by a theater director, George C. Wolf, which means it's, they spend the whole first few minutes of the movie just setting up the two locations where they're going to do all of the scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then the movie essentially never leaves these two locations. And you can tell they just turn the camera on and let these actors go. I think it is a perfect example of a marriage between director, writer, and actor, and trust between all three of them. I think the silver medalist in this is the monologue by Viola Davis as Ma Rainey doing this crazy over-the-top character where she's been a nightmare to the recording studio and the producers. And it is her giving her reasons why. 
and it is a perfectly executed monologue done in barely any cuts. There may be one cut in the whole monologue. And, uh, you know, she's great with August Wilson. She has this great monologue in Fences as well, where she's just uh, weeping and laying into Denzel Washington. I mean, this is just powerhouse actors crushing it. But for me, the one that really takes the cake in that I saw this movie two or three times in the theater. And I remember specifically counting Chadwick Boseman's monologue Mm -hmm. where he talks about his dad in the basement. And this is this is a time where for African-Americans in the country, things were arguably as bad as it had ever been. And this is a rough, rough story to hear. And it is executed by Chadwick Boseman so masterfully there. It is, it's like an eight minute monologue and it happens in, I think two, maybe three shots, like one quick shot, but it is some of these shots are three or four minutes long. And it's just Chadwick Boseman knowing the material, reaching deep, deep, deep inside and pulling out everything he's got. August Wilson writing it, uh, writing this amazing monologue in his part of his cycle of 10 and of the 10 plays he wrote for each decade of the black experience in America in the 20th century. And George Wolf having the faith in Bozeman and in the words of August Wilson to just let this monologue happen. I think it was the reason every that monologue is the reason everyone thought that that was the year Chadwick Boseman was going to win best actor. Specific, the role, the performance was great, but specifically that monologue is I've never been blown away in a theater the way I was when I saw that monologue multiple times. And it got me every time I saw it. In fact, I think I am taking my hat off of the little Oscar that I was going to hand to Robin Williams. And I'm going to hand that little Oscar to Chadwick Boseman for that. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. There are other great ones that we haven't mentioned. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I know right. we don't have a time for a ton more. We do need to start narrowing them down. And I went long on that one. I'm passionately a fan <laughs> of Chadwick Boseman in that scene. One of the things I love as an actor and as someone who just enjoys acting in general is mm-hmm. watching two versions of a scene and seeing how two great actors do a completely different take on it. One who plays it seriously and creates this moment of intimidation and just by his presence and the other who turns it into almost a comedic scene from the rhythm of it. I'm so curious which one you're talking about. You mentioned August Wilson. Yeah. Let's talk about Fences and the Mm -hmm. You Ain't Never Loved Me scene or You Ain't Never Liked Me rather. The where does it say I got to like Mm. you? There is an American Masters of James Earl Jones when he was doing it on Broadway of Mm -hmm. his performance of that scene. And you can see Denzel Washington doing it on stage. And he also does it, the rhythm with which he runs that off. Like you got a, you got, you got a roof over your head. You got food on the table. Like all this. Where does it say I got to like you? Get out of here. Like that is a great, it's kind of cheating. It's not, it's a more of a scene than a monologue. Although he really does all the talking about what it means to be a parent and the responsibility. And like, I, you know, I do what I need to do. I do what I'm supposed to do. So I don't have to like you. I do right by you. Isn't that that the beauty of theater though? Isn't that the beauty of theater that you can see the same actor do or that you can see the same scene done by multiple actors in so many varied ways? We talked about this when we talked about best Scrooge, actually, that there's a million different adaptations. You're seeing the same lines, but delivered in completely different ways by different actors. The other one I will give you very quickly that I don't think is Mm -hmm. the winner, but my childhood friend, Nicole, who is a, listener of the show and, and very active in our Facebook group. I'm grateful for mm-hmm. that, Nicole. 
is Charlie Chaplin's speech from the end of The Great Dictator. Yeah. Uh, we think too much and feel too little. Mm-hmm. Something that is as relevant now as it ever has been. Absolutely. Which is a shame because you would think that during World War II, when this film came out, and this is something he wrote and he performed, and it was a big deal to have him speaking as well. It's a, it's a brilliant movie, a brilliant piece of satire, a great yeah. piece of political commentary, but it sadly remains evergreen. Yeah. And I think that is, that makes it well worth the mention. Absolutely. I've not seen that movie because, you know, you, the Charlie Chaplin that, that most of us know, if we're not super familiar, is all his stuff is the tramp, which is also great. And there's a lot of great yeah. commentary. And he is the tramp well. in this. This is the only time the tramp spoke. Right. That if I'm going to, if I'm going to speak as the tramp, I want to say something important. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting sort of take on the prince and the pauper, which is essentially what if a, Jewish barber looked exactly like Hitler. Yeah. And they got switched. Um, <laughs> Which I think just came from the fact that Hitler stole Chaplin's mustache look. Yes. This is his revenge for that. Yeah. But I just wanted to mention that because I think it's a great monologue and a great film. Sure. It is worth watching. And again, sadly, still relevant. Yeah. Look, we can do honorable mentions all day. There are so many great movie monologues. Okay. How, let's see how far, how long we can go just rapid fire back and forth. Just the name of the movie in the monologue or just the name of the performer in the monologue. New ones? Yeah. Ready? Go. Uh, Morgan Freeman at the end of Shawshank Redemption. Oh my God. That one's so good. Yeah. It's great. Uh, God. Andrew Garfield betrayal monologue from the social network. Uh, Francis McDormand laying into Jack Nicholson and something's got to give at the dinner table. Uh, Radio Raheem speech, love and hate from do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, what? Oh, <laughs> yes. I almost forgot. I'm so sorry, Ken. Uh, Ken Plume has one that I think is kind of brilliant, not kind of brilliant. Ken actually brilliant, even though it is a conversation that he has with himself, mm-hmm. very much like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, which is another great monologue. If you think of it as a monologue, but sure. Ken pointed out that since he is talking to himself, it is a monologue. Kermit the Frog in the Muppet movie. Giving himself a pep talk. It's delightful. It's delightful. It's Jim Henson giving the world a pep talk. What about Rutger Howard's Tears and Rain from Blade Runner? The yeah. same things you people wouldn't believe. Attacks on ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those Ow, from be lost in time like Tears and Rain. You're from Philadelphia. How have you not mentioned? I used to be able to hold you in my hand right here. <sighs> Rocky standing out and just just slowly building a monologue in volume. God loves Sylvester Stallone. Uh, look, I think we have mentioned in that mix, I think there is a best monologue of all time in there. Who do we think are the contenders going through to the finals? Killmonger's death from Black Panther. <laughs> just bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships because they knew yeah. death was better than bondage. Come on. It's great. Is there one that jumps out to you as the best monologue? Of all time, yes. What is it? It's Chadwick Boseman. For me, personally, I think objectively as well, I know you have not seen that movie all the way through. That monologue to me affected me more than any monologue I've ever seen in a film. I was going to go with your move, Chief. Yeah. Goodwill Hunting. Because as you, it's a great speech just to watch it. You know, Mm -hmm. I was in college when that movie came out. So I went and saw it. I was like, oh, that's a really good. That's a really good scene. And over yeah. time, it just gets better because the more life you live moving forward, the better that gets. 
and it was written by two like mid twenties kids. Yeah. Who had had life experience, but you know, the more life you experience, the better that movie and particularly that monologue gets. So it works on a million different levels. And the it's evergreen. That, it's human. The fact that, that it evolves yeah. for the viewer as the viewer changes, I think is a uh, very impressive as a piece of writing and yeah. the performances. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And like I said before, mine is very not objective. Mine is a very subjective choice. The, of course. Uh, Bozeman monologue, but. I think that you're right in that. And I think one thing, you know, as a kid, when I first started acting and was looking for monologues to do, one of the bits of advice I was given is find a monologue that is uh, where you want to affect the other person somehow, which is usually not a story monologue. This is not a story monologue at the beginning. It doesn't start. I think it's brilliantly written in that it doesn't start as a story monologue. Robin Williams' entire focus in that scene is on affecting will hunting in that you know that he's doing his job he is focused on the other person in the way that he's talking to him and then later on it becomes a personal monologue when he starts talking about his wife and you know have you ever smelled the room where this uh, the you know what is the, what does it smell like in the sistine chapel becomes have you ever stayed too late at the hospital because they know that visiting hours don't apply to you. Yeah. That is taking something universal and zeroing that focus in on something so specific. Yeah, I think it's a perfect monologue. I know we have to come to a decision. I know that's the decision we're coming to. But yeah. if I didn't, I, there's one more I have to throw out there. <laughs> and for two reasons. Sure. No. Is it the only way to get a human is to become a human yourself? <laughs> Yes, that's it. It's Ursula, right? That's who you were thinking of? Yes. No, this is, this achieved a lot of different things. It sets the tone for the movie. Mm-hmm. It is another great Quentin Tarantino monologue. Mm-hmm. And it introduces us to maybe one of the great film villains of all time. But more so than that, it introduced American audiences to uh, one of the better actors of our generation, that being Christoph Waltz. Yeah. As Hans Landa in Inglorious Bastards, the entire <laughs> Jew Hunter monologue. Where he's Brutal. playing this cat and mouse game with a French farmer, Monsieur Lapadite, mm-hmm. drinking the milk and just this whole conversation. What is with it creeps is, drinking milk in movies? Uh, they just, they love it. Creeps love milk. It's weird. We know this. I grew up on milk. I'm not a Jew hunting Nazi or a murderer. Well, thank goodness. Yeah. You wouldn't have been doing a podcast with me. I know. If I was I either be, of those things. Be terrible. Uh, but that is a great monologue. However, yeah. people of the world, yeah, the greatest monologue of all time is an exploration of grief, an exploration of what it means to have experience versus knowledge and what that means, especially in an era now where we conflate the two, maybe too much one way or the other. And it's a pivotal moment in that film. Because it's not only does it the first time we see Will Hunting being bested, but it's the beginning of him learning that he's got to reach outside of this book learning that he's done to grow as a human being Mm -hmm. and to really find out who he is and know what he wants. Because in some ways, the world has been way too hard on him. In other ways, the world is way too easy for him to understand. So... It was an Academy Award winning performance by Robin Williams, and it is 
the Your Move Chief monologue from Goodwill Hunting asked and answered. What a delightful dive into some really good acting, huh? How much fun. And we right. learned Arby's for outside. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Arby's is an outside food. And uh, I got to take the trash out so I'm not looking at all of these Happy Meal boxes anymore. Look, these 50th anniversary Disney World toys are not just going to show up in my apartment. <laughs> this topic is closed. Thank you to Annie McCown for pitching this topic and to all of the people of the world who jumped in and inspired us for this episode. If we didn't get get you the shout out in there, I apologize. But we uh, love you and we care about you and we thank you so much. You can reach out to us if you have a topic at We Got This Tweets or you can email us at We Got This Podcast at gmail.com. But the real fun, the real meat on the bone is in our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash We Got This Podcast. You can just jump into the existing thread there with your favorite movie monologues and thank you as always to all of the people of the world who show up there on a daily basis who have conversations and who make it one of the safest and most fun places to be on all the internet thank you to producer ken plume who hosts the great bit of a chat with ken plume and force five on his youtube channel you can find out more about both of those at patreon.com slash ken plume thank you also to researcher kate mcmanus graphic designer uri kelman and qa engineer jen alba and thank you, of course, to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman for our score and theme song, respectively. And thanks to you, the people of the world. You had us at hello. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For Hal Lublin, I'm Mark Gagliardi. For Mark Gagliardi, I'm Hal Lublin. And don't worry, everybody. We got this. We got this. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.